Welcome to 242, a podcast of the Buffalo Vineyard Church where we discuss topics that are important to our lives as followers of King Jesus. This is episode 19. I'm talking about science and truth with Leanne Mitaba Brown. We start by talking a little bit about climate science and climate policy, and we define science as a tool or a methodology for learning the truth. We also ask, are there questions that science doesn't answer? What is the relationship between science and faith? How do we talk about science and how do we attempt to use science for our own purposes? And we also end by talking about how the COVID pandemic has colored the way that people think about science and politics. I hope you enjoy. All right, Leanne, so you were telling me about uh, a homework assignment or a class assignment that your that your brother had. We were going to yeah. start there. So, yeah. so tell me more about that. Sure. Well, I'm. he's probably going to rip on me for getting it wrong. But <laughs> so the assignment was they had justice, peace, mercy, and truth. And they had to rank those, an order of importance to them, not mm. necessarily to what they think should be like the most important to society, but what was most important to them. And so he was telling me about it and asking me about it. And it really didn't take me any time at all to consider. And I like realized to me, truth came first, then justice, mercy, and then peace. And the reason that truth comes first is I don't really believe that you can have justice or mercy or peace if you don't first have truth. You need truth to be able to make judgments, to understand what justice is. And if there isn't the option of justice... I don't really think mercy is real. Mm. And okay. and when you have truth, justice, and mercy, then the world becomes more peaceful. You have peace as an option. Mm. So I think really those originate with truth. And so my brother like shot back with, well, so your goal is peace then. So shouldn't that be the most important to you? And I think that's a, that's a valid point. But I do think... Maybe it's my personality. Maybe it's my training in the sciences. But truth just seems to be really important. And I would rank that higher because I just think that's just, like I said, foundational to a lot of the things that we're. So that's a a question. Would you say that truth is important because it is kind of like the tool that helps you get to those other things that are the ultimate importance? Or is truth important in and of itself? I think both. So what if you know the truth and you're, you know, like not using it to produce justice or mercy or. Um, right. You know. So knowledge for knowledge sake, kind of. Yeah. And not as the truth and knowledge are the same thing. But yeah, I think. I think that if you know the truth of something or you have truth, it's really hard not to act on it. Mm. And, and to to work towards. I mean, maybe that's just me, (laughs) but um, I think that question does really relate to some of what you wanted to talk about with this is truth in action being justice, mercy, and peace. And I think that that's kind of like the relationship that I see science having with a lot of other aspects of life. The science gives you knowledge and then the action based on that knowledge that you're using to kind of shape your action is something that is sort of science, but it's different. It's kind of become another thing. So what I, what I just heard you say is that, um, and we can go back to your your brother's class assignment if you want, but what I just heard you say is that 
for you, science, you would, it seems like kind of implicitly define science as a tool for getting truth. Yeah, that, I think so. Yeah, so, it's like understanding. It's most basic. Yeah, yeah. The science, it's like, it's a, a knowledge system, but it's also a system of, a methodology used to better conceive of the physical world. Okay. Specifically. Um, and identifying patterns and creating a system of knowledge that shows the operation of the world around us. Okay. So it's, uh, so again, what I'm hearing you say is that science is a tool um, or, uh, and when I say tool, not necessarily like a physical tool, but it's yeah, like, yeah. it's a, a process, right? Yeah. Methodology is probably a better way of, of mm. talking about it, but a methodology for um, understanding truths about the way the physical world works. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I would agree with that. I think, Science has also become a culture as well. Mm, yeah. It's not just a methodology. It is also, in a way, the knowledge gained by that systematic study. Okay. And in another way... So like the body of scientific knowledge Yeah. in colloquial terms also just gets called science. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. And then, and then there's also the culture of science. Like, as a scientist, when I'm communicating things I want to communicate them in a specific way I want to write like a lab report or I want to write like a peer-reviewed journal article about yeah. something and that is what I'm comfortable doing because that's the culture of science and Matt so what I hear you talking about there would be more more specifically the culture of the scientific community yeah you yeah. could also talk about maybe a culture of science more broadly and th this might be l less um less positivistic in its, in its description. So, so like the, the culture of the scientific community is just kind of like the way the scientific community operates in the pursuit of those scientific methods. Yeah. Whereas more broadly we have a culture. So we were talking a little bit about how often in our society people are using science or the scientific community or the scientific body of knowledge just as an appeal to authority. Mm. And so, sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's bad. I mean, I would say, you know, it's not taken as a whole. I think it's positive that we view science and the scientific method as an authority on, on the tr truths about the natural world. I think that's a good thing. Right. The fact that we lean into that the way that we do is not always a good thing. Not always, especially because the complication of that is that the scientific methodology, I think, is is an incredibly sophisticated, powerful method for pattern identification mm. it's really difficult and like if you try and corner any scientist and have them say for certain anything they're not going to want to because what we look at is correlation and we have like i said very sophisticated methods for finding that yeah. and you can know something with about as much certainty as you can know things and then there are other things where you see a pattern but it's yeah. not given in any circumstance and so that's where a lot of complication comes in right and so it's also complicated because you have that authority. You're expected to speak with confidence and absolute certainty. But we don't want to do that because being somebody who understands the situation and all of its complexity and all of the context and knowing how small of a facet you're actually looking at with a piece of knowledge, yeah. you don't want to speak with that much confidence. Yeah. And, and that kind of ends up meaning that people will take research and they'll be able to run in different directions with it and it's difficult to to put a stop with that and say no it's definitely this or no it's definitely not when the people who are 
experts on the matter don't want to clarify. And I think that is part of the culture of science, is that when you're speaking, you don't want to say anything that can be misinterpreted. And that's just part of your your culture. But that's not necessarily the culture of the people that you're communicating to. Right. And that, that's something that you learn over a long period of time when you're like being trained in the sciences. Yep. And when you step out of that into the public who wants confidence, mm-hmm. it creates a lot of issues with science communication. No. Yeah. So you were just, you were just, you, what was the phrase you used that scientists don't want to be misunderstood. Yeah. And it's actually interesting. So when you, so as, as a scientist speaking to uh, other scientists, the way in which you um, pursue clarity and, and, and maintain your ability to speak confidently about the, the facts that you're claiming is to be incredibly precise and nuanced. Yes. Right. Correct. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I think that people in uh, political and even kind of like more moral conversations, they also don't want to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. But in uh, in a political conversation in a democracy where you're basically aiming at getting the most, <laughs> the, the widest level of support possible, mm-hmm. the way you uh, promote moral clarity and um, conviction is by being as blunt and um, lacking in nuance as possible, which, yeah. is, which is like the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Right, from, nuance is, is scary. You don't want to yeah. think, oh, but maybe my decision isn't right. Like you well, and people don't understand get, it. That's Like if you're speaking to scientists, you can assume a level of both intelligence and rigor and training and understanding of the terminology and that allows you to speak in nuances and people can track the argument. Whereas when you're speaking to the whole of our, like a whole nation or a whole city or a whole state, you, you, you can't. Right. So you have to assume that people are going to misunderstand everything you say in the worst possible ways, <laughs> unless you speak in incredibly blunt and clear terms. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to sloganeer things instead of, which like, that's not how scientists talk to each other in slogans. It's not at all. Right. But it and is how politicians talk. True. I, mm-hmm. I often wonder, and I, I spend a lot of time imagining like the ideal future like mm. what what could be a good way that this would look? And I, I think for me, that's like a real aspect of my faith mm. is 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 taking things I know about the world and then trying to untwist them into a form of shalom, yeah. like the right way of things. Like, what would this look like? Give me an example. If, um. Give me a good well, slogan. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> no, but but in that circumstance, like what would the world Roots are look people like? Too. What would it what would it be if we could talk with that amount of nuance and not be mm. afraid okay. of the consequences? If we could give the context, the entire context of a particular circumstance or a scientific study to the public and not be worried about being misunderstood or be worried about like where people would go with it yeah. and what would communication look like if there was a more positive view of it instead of like the concern of like, well, we can do no harm. Instead you were like, well, let's do good with it yeah. and kind of flipping those, those narratives on their head. And I really don't know what the steps to get from where we are to get to there are, but I actually I like think to what we're doing is it. one of them. Yeah. So yeah, I do. I, I know you had said, uh, the 
some of the topics that we were going to push into, like we're, we're and we'll mm-hmm. talk about climate science and environmental environmental science and their intersection with, you know, politics and faith and morality. Cause mm-hmm. I think that's a place that you're really um, more of an expert in digging into right. trying to be, but man, I just can't help but think about the, did you see or hear about um, all of the hubbub around, you know, Sanjay Gupta is. Yes. Yes. So he's CNN's medical advisor. You know, Joe Rogan is vaguely vaguely. Right. So he's, probably the most listened to person on the planet right now. Interesting. Right. So he's got the largest podcast audience on the planet, which is larger than like basically all of mainstream media put together. It's pretty crazy. Anyway, so he had like this three hour uh, podcast conversation with Sanjay Gupta about COVID science and media communication around COVID science. And which again, so this is where like this is what it, what is like all right up your alley. But yeah. I know that this isn't an area of science that you're necessarily either like digging into or paying attention to is like right. the medical stuff and the COVID stuff. I think if I had unlimited hours in my life, I would be. <laughs> if I could clone myself, there's there like, at least five of me. Going to school and working or something? <laughs> what? What yeah. is that? But yeah, I, I think so. There was There's way more context to that, um, all of which I find fascinating. But the like what did happen is you have... So, you know, Joe Rogan is not an expert on anything other than MMA and comedy. Like that's his area of expertise. Right. And interviewing people. Um, But he, you know, he has no problem like saying dumb things and then like letting people think that he's an idiot. Like he's fine with that. And he said lots of dumb things about COVID. And, you know, anyway, so so Sanjay Gupta comes on to basically, quote unquote, correct his his bad ideas. But they had what it was like a three or four hour conversation about all of this stuff that was really fascinating. And it was, it, it was, I think, what you're talking about, which is... Creating I'm, platforms. For people to have way more nuanced conversations. And I think it's it's fascinating that, that Joe Rogan is the one creating the platform. And I think there are, I mean, you know, the rise of the podcast is oh, yes, love absolutely them. right. It's, it is the, so now, like, this, this is not a space for slogans. Right. Right. This is a you place for nuanced conversations where we're actually exploring a topic. And I mean, you know, we tend to limit the, the conversations on this podcast to an hour ish. Right. Um, but that's still like pretty good for two people to have, a, you know, a meaningful conversation. And I think that to me is an exciting part about about some of the things that I see happening in our culture, not just around science, obviously, but around lots of topics. But I think it gets at exactly what you're talking about, yeah. which is pushing more nuanced pursuit of truth into the mainstream of our cultural dialogue. Yeah. And allowing for it to exist in ways that are accessible to people. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because not everyone wants to listen to a three hour conversation, but I I do agree that having those available and not just, you know, an article that takes three minutes to read or like a five minute news clip is really important because Science takes a really long time to understand. I mean, like I'm still in school and I spend like hours of my day reading and rereading articles just to make sure that I have the facts straight and I understand what they're trying to say with it. So it's not an easy task. Right. But I do think as much as not everybody's up for that task, um, I think a lot more people are up for that task than we've been led to believe. So back to that, like the, the Rogan Gupta thing, it was really funny watching the talking heads on CNN basically poo poo Rogan's interview with Gupta because it was a three hour conversation. Mm-hmm. And they're like, who has time to listen to that? Right. right. Me- meanwhile, CNN has literally like 
10% of the ratings that Joe Rogan has. So it's huh. like, clearly, actually, a lot of people have time to listen to that. And in fact, more people would rather listen to Sanjay Gupta have a three-hour conversation with Joe Rogan than a 30-second clip on CNN. Right. So it's like, well, there's there's actually an appetite for that. Hmm. Which is cool, I think. Yeah, I would. In spite of what you think about Joe Rogan. (laughs) I don't, like I said, I don't really know. I know lots of people have lots of opinions about Ah, Joe Rogan. Yes. All right. So um, we should talk about climate science. Let's talk about it. Yeah. What, um, start with some bold statements. Like from your perspective, you know, if you're, you're mainly talking to our church. Yeah. um, So talking to Christians, what are some of the things that you would say, I would really want people to to know this or believe this or act this way or, you know, advocate for this when it comes to uh, to our client, like our, our climate, climate change issues, um, you know, maybe the environment more broadly and our relationship to it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would just say, this is what I wish people would do? Yeah. I'd like to uh, start by adding context because I'm a scientist. <laughs> I am not a climate scientist. This yeah. is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, just as an individual and because I'm trained in some aspects of science, I yeah. think I do have a deeper understanding, but this is not my le- like area of expertise. Right. Um, but I, I really do want people to take it seriously, mm. to take it seriously as something that we should all be thinking about. Okay. We should all be talking about. And it's difficult because it is incredibly contextual. So trying to make broad statements for the entirety of the earth of what people should be doing is next to impossible. The one statement that I would say everybody should be doing is talking about it and thinking about it in the context of their life. So I think that's something that I would definitely say like everybody should be doing. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean reading articles about climate science, but it does mean paying attention to the conversations that are happening. So the COP26, the the meeting of of world leaders just ended. And it was both exciting because it happened and there were lots of excellent statements about what people were willing to do and what they were willing to fund and how they were going to work together. It was also incredibly frustrating Mm. because this is not a new thing. Right. Climate science, conversations about climate change and what our actions should be have been going on since like before I was born. Right. Which is when I learned that like a little bit frightening and frustrating. And so, yeah, it's it's frustrating to see how far we've come in some ways and how we really haven't moved anywhere in other ways. Right. And um, yeah. Sorry, just like kind of trailed off there. I just, it's just frustrating. I've been uh, thinking about that a bit. But in terms of other bold statements, um, I do think that climate change is real. I think that it is. How, how bold is that really? I don't think it's that bold, but to a lot of people, it does <laughs> seem that way. And I do think that in many ways, it's anthropomorphic. So it's like right. human caused. That's where you get a little bit more bold. We do not that much bolder, but it, but, not, but it's a little yeah. bit more bold than climate change is happening. Yeah, yeah, and and I think climate changes bold stru- bold truths with yes, <laughs> Leanne meet him Leanne just states some facts. <laughs> <laughs> it seems controversial. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't really come prepared to have no, bold statements right. about climate change, and like again because 
it's so but complex climate, and it's the entire is changing. world. There, there clearly is some sort of human cause at least contributing in some way, shape or form to yeah. that. I also think that if people work together, we can reverse, we can at least mitigate it. Okay. And there's possibility of reversing a lot of the negative effects. And I think that it requires something more than just a few new technologies. It really does require an entire paradigm shift in the way that we think about our relationship to the environment. And I, I think I already said this on our previous conversation, but just you're in a relationship with your environment. Yeah. You are, whether you admit it or not, whether you live in the middle of a city, like in an apartment, whether you've never touched grass in your life, you're still in a relationship with your environment. It looks different given different circumstances, but you need to accept that and i wish people would be more curious about that and yeah. the impacts of it so. i mean i think that's one of the um so i haven't read a ton of um why am i blank on his name the guy who writes all the all the like back to nature christian stuff i don't know oh come on Christ, <laughs> christy's gonna kill me for blanking on his name wendell berry wendell berry oh Thank my you. <laughs> I Thanks. That's not how I would have described him, but uh, okay. Uh, the cantankerous old guy who uh, wants us all to live on farms. As soon like, as you said Christy, I was like, oh, I know who you're talking yeah. about. No, I, so I've, I've fun, read it. I, I was going to say, I've, I've read a ton of Wendell Berry, but I've read enough. Wow, now I lost the thought. Where You said, what did you're you say? You're in a relationship with your environment. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that I have really appreciated about him is he, he really makes it clear that we are, a, we are all in a relationship with the environment around us and B, a lot of us don't know it. And yeah. that, that has produced a, a unique problem in our, in our day that is, that is unique to our day. Yeah. And yeah. I think I, my take on that is at least part of that is because we're missing a huge facet of our lives. Right. And that's, it's, it's not. It's not truthful right? because you have this understanding of yourself as separate and that's missing like a huge chunk of the truth. Yep. And so when we start to look at our lives missing that, there's just like a big pic piece of the picture missing. Yeah. And I think part of ideally what, what science is looking at, it's, it's finding those relationships and it's finding facts. And you're, as a scientist, not necessarily as part of the scientific method, but as a scientist, what you should be doing is trying to pull all of those things together to create a bigger picture mm. and to create a more full picture. And um, I think one of one of the questions that you had sent to me was who's better positioned to mm. make judgments about science? Was it science judgments about science or was it just talk to, about the context? Of I science? don't know. I should probably read what I actually <laughs> sent you. I know what right. I meant to ask. Right. We'll but, see if I actually asked this. Okay. But, but the question was like, was it either a scientist or a philosopher. Right. And really, I think the person better positioned is a scientist mm. because there's somebody who's very close to those facts, who's part of mm. asking those questions and who, if they're a good scientist, right. should be looking at the edges of those questions and where they can't answer and who else is asking those questions. Mm. And you're creating more of an interdisciplinary picture. And so the person who's perhaps best able to make a judgment call in a situation, be it looking at politics or like more environmental science should be the person who's trying to encompass the largest amount of facts, mm. the largest like group of facets of a relationship yeah. or of a situation. 
And I think that there are many circumstances where that is a scientist or a scientific researcher. Yeah. I think part of the reason why I asked that question is um, I think I'm very happy to say that scientists are the expert at using the scientific method. I have come across plenty of scientists, and this is more like in reading than in inter- interaction, because um, it's not like I sit around and talk to lots of scientists face to face, but I've done a little of that. It does seem like sometimes they don't actually know what the tools are. Hmm. They, they're great at using them. And, you know, so it's like uh, a carpenter who they can swing a hammer and they can build a house, but they don't actually know the first thing about how to build a hammer. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like they I don't know, so. they don't know, like, you know, if you asked, a, if you asked a, a carpenter to build you a hammer, they wouldn't know how to build one. Right. So they can but use, they know how to use the hammer like data to build science a house. to discover things. Right. But wouldn't necessarily understand the biases of data science. Right. Or, or the metaphysical framework upon which sits the scientific method itself. Right. So that would be an interesting thought that I have discussed often with, with my brother in particular. Mm. Um, but just that that scientists are biased. That science right. is biased. Science is a bias. Right. It is. It's and a bias it, I happen to agree with. Right. It, it It's a very powerful methodology, and yeah. it, it does work increasingly close to objective truth, but you can never have objective truth because you mm. are an, an a, like a biased individual, and the method that you're using is not able, you're, you're not omniscient, and neither is the methodology that you're using. Right. And I think that, in good science communication, that should be part of what's communicated. And that, again, is it's frightening because if you don't have ultimate authority, then you're called into question as well as the information you're communicating. Yeah. I think good science communication comes with like nuanced communication of facts as well as putting yourself as a scientist into the narrative. So you say, like, this is what we know. This is why we think we know it or this is what the science shows and this is how you can interpret it and this is why I care, this is what I've been doing, this is how I would interpret it given the information that I have, which is like, like I just gave you the context that like I think a lot about climate science, climate change and how we should interact with it, but I'm not a climate scientist. I care about it because I care a lot about the world. I care about my relationship to the environment and realized very early on that that was something with implications that were planet-wide. Right. And that's really hard to ignore once you realize it. So this is going to seem like a rabbit trail. Okay. We, will, we will tie all this back together, though. Right. So is science capable of making value judgments? Um, I would say that the scientific method is not, but scientists absolutely are. Well, right. Yes. I mean, the science, like, so when I say science, I'm thinking more like the, the, the products of the scientific method. Obviously, scientists don't just perform the scientific method. They also eat and talk to friends and, you know, they, they right. do all sorts but, of other but human also endeavors. In designing studies, you are adding your values into right. them. In the questions that you're asking, mm-hmm. those are our value judgments. Right. Right. So when you're looking at like, if you're looking at how to restore an ecosystem, you're already having the value judgment that it's worth restoring. Well, right. So but, that, that, that seems to me... Not at all a flaw if we're aware of it, but an incredible flaw if we're not aware of it. Would you I, agree? I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, that's why I think that like philosophy should be at least a part of scientific training as well to recognize the context you're in. And I think I've been very fortunate mm. in that 
my teachers and my supervisors and my mentors have been and have been very interested in interdisciplinary work yeah. and have been very aware of as scientists how do we communicate and why yeah. and yeah so I would definitely say that we should be aware of it but yeah. I think even as we're taking steps to become more aware we're missing so many facets like the example like thinking that we should restore an ecosystem is a value judgment. So we're looking into that. But even beyond that, because ecosystems are dynamic, right. you have to pick a point to which yeah. to restore it. And that's a value right. judgment. Did I, I don't know if I told you this or not, but so the, I had a professor that really, he was, he was an amazing professor and he was, um, uh, well, he taught actually a lot of, it was more like, like environmental politics kinds of classes. So I don't, okay. I think he was more a poli sci guy than a, than an ecological guy, but I feel like he had an ecology degree. Anyway, he, he said he was a, he was a, a preservationist and that he wanted to preserve the Jurassic. That was what, <laughs> right. Exact. But to your point that, mm -hmm. you know, like if we're going to say, Oh, we need to preserve this pristine natural world. It's like, well, then you're ignoring the fact that the, that, the natural world actually exists in a constant state of flux and, and dynamic change. And so you're just picking a random spot in time and saying, this is nature when that's not actually what nature is. Not to mention in, in the language you just used, like pristine natural wilderness, right? you're forgetting that like <laughs> humans have been interacting with their environment and have been shaping it and been shaped by it right. forever. Yeah. Right. It's not, that there is this region of the world that was untouched by mankind and we mm. need to just go back to that. I think that's a huge flaw in reasoning and I hear it often. Right. Um, and I, I don't think that was your intention, but even in no, the no, language no. that we use, yes. it comes up. Right. No, it, it was yeah. my intention. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> right. For, but for that reason, because mm -hmm. I think it's, it, it posits also, well, and so, so those value judgments then I think where this gets practical and where it comes back to the climate change conversation is, so I'm, pretty happy to accept what, you know, and I know there's debate about what the scientific consensus is. Like that's one of the things that people like to argue about. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, I don't really have a lot of, like, I'm kind of like, well, I feel like I know what the scientific consensus is around what's going on with the climate. I'm pretty happy to just accept that. Right. Which is basically what you said. Mm -hmm. The climate is changing. Human beings are part of the cause. If we act concertedly, we could actually mitigate some of the, the potential, um, serious problems that could come from that. So all of that, I'm happy to just go, all right, cool. But then the question is, what should we do? Right. right? Which that now, now it seems to me that the scientific method could help us answer the question. If we do a, what is to be the likely result? If we do B, what is to be the likely result? And if we do C, what is to be the likely result? I don't think that the scientific method can answer the question. Should we do a, B or C? I think that that's actually something that we have to we have to have other different tools or methods that will help us answer the question, assuming that the scientific method has helped us understand what actions in the present will help us get to what future state. We still that that doesn't answer the question: What is the desired future state, and what is the best process of getting there? That 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 as a community we would agree is is in some way, shape or form, the best way to get to the best future, that that's actually, those are value statements that science doesn't actually have the ability to answer for us. I don't know if you would right. agree with that. I think so, especially your, your point of that the scientific method can inform us of outcomes. And mm -hmm. we, 
can never know, especially we can, when, like I said, we're looking at patterns and pattern identification, even in the present. How are we to like know with 100% certainty about the future? I do think while the scientific method cannot make those value judgments, again, oftentimes there are scientists who are, because they've been studying this, much closer to a situation and better able to see at least a wide sliver of this situation and the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they should be involved in making those moral oh, yeah. judgments. Sure. No, no, I don't have a problem with that. I think, yeah. I think we're, so this is, this is where the rubber hits the road with, okay. the, with the climate change thing. Did you, I don't know if you got a chance to read that article I sent you. Uh, I skimmed it. Uh, that's fine. I did not fact totally. check. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's totally fine. It's not even really about the fact checking. It's more like the art. And again, I, I'm not in a position to fact check that guy or, right. you know, I know he's somebody who had, he had some real credentials in terms of like being like a good, you know, let's, let's stop climate change kind of a guy right. who then ended up not changing course, but really changing his tune around, um, the kinds of policies that he was advocating for. So he still is somebody who's a strong advocate for addressing climate change, but he really has, has flipped a lot of the policy proposals that he's advocating for on their head. Mm. And that's, what's interesting to me is that, that he's somebody who he has said, okay, all of these statements about, you know, what's going on with the climate and where we're headed. I'm accepting this is true. Um, I also think we should do something about it, but the question of what we should do about it actually needs to be thought about through more than just the tools of the scientific method. And that, because I think the assumption is if you believe that um, climate, the climate is changing and that it's anthropomorphically caused and that there's going to be negative consequences and that there is something we should do about it or that we can do about it Mm -hmm. if we start taking drastic action now, the assumption is that means we should start taking drastic action now, right? Yes. Well, so there, there's like some questions that should still be asked that aren't necessarily questions posed by science. Um, you know, so like one of the things that this guy is essentially advocating for, I kind of brought this up with you in our last conversation, is that the, <laughs> the reason we even care about the climate is because of how rich we are. And the reason that we're willing to make sacrifices to... Um, to, to protect the environment in some way, shape or form is because of how rich we are. And that one possible path to addressing climate change is to get the entire world as rich as we are as fast as possible, and then have the, the, the political will to address climate change and environmental catastrophe much more rapidly, which with much more consensus, right? So there's that's kind of like the argument that I've heard this guy make. Right. Um, I'm not in a position to fact check that. You know what I mean? That's right. like, but but it's it is a it is an example of a kind of, um, you know, political policy proposition that that requires a little bit more. Like there's just more going on in that analysis than what I typically hear from well, either the right or the left on this topic. It's right. usually either we got to save the environment or we got to protect our jobs. And it's like, well, what if it's a little bit more complicated than that? And we're actually going to do both at the same time. Yeah. And and I think related to that, um, one of the huge difficulties in, in discussing climate change and climate science is that it's like the entire planet that you're often trying to work with. Right. 
And that exists beyond any one lived experience. That's like not just an entire community, that's entire continents. Right. And so it looks so different depending on where you are. And there are thousands of variables to add into that equation if we're we're speaking in terms of of that that I like to use as examples. And when it is that complicated, it's really difficult to actually discuss with any meaning. (laughs) It really is. We're back to that. Yeah. We, We just need more nuance. We do. We need and a six-hour podcast. True. Yes. We'll just keep talking about this. But I think that in terms of when you're talking about the entire planet, it's very helpful to have broad statements like this is happening, the value statement of we should not make this happen more. Right. We need to actually work to reverse this. But in terms of actionable steps, I mm-hmm. think that's so much more local. And that's why I really think, like I said earlier, this this requires more of a paradigm shift in the way that we're thinking. Yeah. The way that we're acting on an individual or a community level is where you're going to have more applicable change. And that's very difficult to start. Yeah. But I think that's that's really necessary. And I like to use metaphors and <laughs> examples based on like, forests because that's what I study but like we talk about ecosystems as if they're like distinct but they're not right like we only have a distinct ecosystem because we choose to draw a border around it for a study purpose so that we can find a pattern right but really this is like one continuous ecosystem existing across like the entire world and it it's difficult to then create any kind of like shape around what to do when you have this constant evolving context. Right. And so what you kind of have to do is, is exactly what we do in, in um, ecology is kind of draw borders around a system that will answer the question that you want to ask. So if you're looking at like, green energy like what is the system at which that's actually actionable i would argue not the entire north american continent right not even like one country this is looking at like community level and that is such a difficult conversation to start yeah especially because it started at such a large scale so then you're like okay we have to do this thing where where do we even start making those steps yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that made sense. No, I'm tracking what you're saying. I think it still, it, it begs the question for me though about, cause this is, this is one of the things that, and we, we've talked about this a little bit already. One of the things that frustrates me about the way in which science is, I, sh- I guess, I guess the way I would say it is the way in which science is invoked or used in public discourse. Right. Um, which I don't think is largely the fault of scientists or the scientific community. Um, there's probably ways in which scientists both play into that and also push back against it. Right. Um, I think I've seen that. But I think it's a lot more a problem that comes from outside the scientific community. It's just attempts to recognizing that science is an authority. We're now going to grab for it and try and use it for our own purposes. I think that's a lot more what's going on. Right. But so to see then people you just invoke science and then do whatever they want. Right. Right. And it's like, well, so that's, that's not honest. Mm -hmm. And whereas I think, so for example, around climate change, it seems to me like 
so I, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like, uh, I'm criticizing left-wing politics, but I, I am in this case, but I think I would equally point at places where it, it goes both ways, where okay. the right and the left would just kind of grab onto science as an authority, um, kind of trying to baptize itself in the authority of the scientific community. Right. Okay. Um, and I think around climate science, that's one of those places where you have, you know, like this painting of anybody from the right as anti-science around this issue. Um, when I don't actually think that, you know, so this is where the Bjorn Lomberg kind of comes into the equation is I don't actually think that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the push to, I don't know, address kind of like carbon taxes or like, I don't actually think that those are largely driven by the scientific method. Those are way more about uh, like, like those are, those are policy statements. Those are policy proposals. Those aren't, those aren't like that. That's not like a scientific idea. That's, that's. So you've used science. Right. To make a point of, we want less carbon in the atmosphere. But that's not a scientific statement. That's a value statement. We want less carbon in the air. We have the scientific method to tell us that having less carbon in the air would most likely, given our estimates, create the future that we have said we want. Right. Exactly. So, but, <laughs> but the want part of it has nothing to do with science. It does the not. science is like the like, hey, when this happens, this happens part. Right. But then the we don't want that to happen is something separate from science. True. Right. And then when you have policies in place, you're finding actionable steps to create that future that right. science has shown us right. that we have made the value statement of we want it. Right. And there are many ways that that can look. But that's the part where I'm saying, yeah, but but the policies that people are proposing aren't actually the good strategies to get us where we want to go. Right. There's like way better strategies out there. Like if we were actually going to dig into the scientific method and try and understand what's the best way to get to these, you know, like let's chart a couple of different paths to some various futures using the scientific method to help us understand where we're trying. And how to, people are going to respond right. to things. And it's, it's quite interesting to look at like social dynamics. Mm. And using the scientific method to look at how do people respond to different policy regimes right. and stuff like that. <laughs> and that is an application of the scientific method. But like you said, I, and I would agree, the value that statement that we want to get there. Right. And, and, and the value statement going into that study of like, how do people respond to different policies? How do they respond socially to people tweeting about it like these right. are, these are things that people are actually looking into right those are based on the value and and right. i think because scientists are closer like i said often they have like this faceted like this large slice of the knowledge pie of the situation they are able to inform those kind of right value statements and they should be able to inform policies as well and so Yes, those are value statements. Yes, we should be talking about the whole picture. And I, but I, I do really think that scientists should be a part of that conversation. Oh, and I, I do think that in general, based on like my understanding and what I've seen, I think that scientists have, have failed in that sense mm. in the past. In what sense? In the sense of stepping up and saying, this is what we should do. Mm. And I think that that comes with, being part of a culture that just says things 
Like this is the mm. fact that I know. This is the method that I used to get that knowledge. Mm. And then not wanting to put your own value in it because you have this theoretical objectivity. And it's been cool to see at least mm. the people that I work with starting to push against that and to try to say, well, we should be putting ourselves in the narrative. Right. And and recognizing why we know what we know, but also why we care and why we're yeah. studying and what we think should be done with it, given our understanding. And I think in really complicated questions like, okay, so we've made this value that value statement. We want less carbon in the atmosphere. Right. How do we get there? Even if it's for like a smaller area, you do need more than just an environmental scientist or a climate scientist. Yeah. You need an economist. You need social scientists. Right. You need people who are working on the community level. You need agronomists. You need grocery stores. You need people to work together to get the largest like knowledge pie. I'm yeah. thinking of these as like you have different slivers of knowledge. Sometimes they overlap. And you want to create a situation in you where you have the biggest picture that you possibly can. Right. And I think that working together, I haven't seen it done very well. No, I agree. I agree, man. I, so I feel like I'm, I'm struggling because this is an area that I'm not as like, it's, it's an area that you're way more passionate about, interested in an expert mm -hmm. on. Whereas the place that I've had a lot more intersection with like science and truth is actually around more like medical stuff. Hmm. Like I've just thought, I mean, even just the last year and a half of I COVID. Say, is that it? Right. That's not it though. That's not all of it. Um, I mean, it's one of the places where like I've just had my own life experience around interacting with doctors and you know, that kind of stuff. But um, so I, so I do want to push into the, the COVID a little bit for an example in a second, okay. but so, so a couple of things that I was thinking about with the, the environmental side of things. So an example, like a clear example that I'm aware of that, at least to my understanding, it's kind of like one of these like policies that gets pushed sometimes by politicians that has, at least as I understand it from the scientific side, almost like no impact is the whole like things like banning plastic straws. Where it's right. like, it just doesn't, it doesn't change anything. It's not having an impact on the environment at all. It's not affecting climate change, but you have like politicians using it to get elected or using it as a wedge to kind of like, you know, do slogan. Right. It exactly. does have an impact. It does have an impact. But I mean, the, the whether impact it's is, the impact that they're trying to tout it as having right. completely different right. story. And I think, oh man, I wish I had reread this essay. Um, Cause there was this really excellent it was a philosophy essay and it was talking about using the same frameworks that we always have in the same systems to try to fix something that was happening in that system. So their, their example was with cars. Mm. And so they were talking about if you're using the exact same framework to transport people, to pressure them into buying new things, to give people jobs through building new cars, yeah. but you just shift to them being electric are you really solving a problem right. or should you be talking about what would it look like to get masses of people to different places in a way that was community-based and in a way that actually changed the way that we're moving? Right. And that I think is, is a really good example of what I'm talking about when I say a paradigm shift is we're not just talking about shifting like the energy that we have to green energy. We're talking about like, how do we creatively 
and effectively rethink the ways that we're living. Right. And the ways that we're living that are important to us given the context. Yep. Right? No, I think, so that to me seems like exactly the way that Christians should be engaging around these kinds of topics is, and particularly from the perspective of, you know, so like one of the insights that you've shared several times now is that, you know, you're in a relationship to, to your natural environment. And as Christians, we should both already know that. Um, and also recognize that that's actually a part of our, our original intended purpose for why we're on the planet in the first place is to steward that relationship. So, so being people who are not just recognizing we have a relationship, but actually thinking creatively about how we should engage with that relationship and what that looks like. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's spot on. Yeah. And it, it gets complicated and and difficult and people get defensive when you bring up like your example, mm. I can't remember the author that you were referencing, but him yeah. saying that the reason that we want to protect the environment is because we're wealthy. Oh. And that yes. we should have this particular course of action to right. get everyone to the same level of wealth right. so that we will all act together. Right. Well, that's got a huge assumption in it in that mm, the yeah. reason that we care is because of wealth. Well, actually, he's not arguing that it's a causal relationship. He What he's essentially saying is, so, so the, the way the cause works is people don't care about the environment when they're starving to death. That's the causal relationship. So right. everybody cares about the environment. They just care less about the environment than not watching their kids starve to death. And so we care about the environment more because we're not watching our kids starve to death. Mm. Whereas you have like whole chunks of the planet that are either like on the cusp of watching that happen or their parents were on the cusp of watching that happen. And they're in the first generation kind of in a developing poverty as, as a a motivator. Right. So poverty is actually a motivator to not care about what we're doing to the environment. So that's what he's saying. And that if you want to get, and so, so this is where like, if you, and when you're talking about climate change, you do have to talk about the whole world, not just America. Um, So if we're going to solve, you know, climate change problems by, you know, curbing the carbon footprint. Basically what we're saying is, sorry, Africa, you guys just have to starve to death while, you know, we have enjoyed our industrial, you know, we, we've gone right. through our industrial revolution, so we're okay. You know what I mean? And, right. and that, 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 that is, there's this tension there mm-hmm. that I know does exist yeah. around the conversation around climate change. And this is something, that. this is something that I don't have the expertise on, but I wish that I did because I spend a lot of time thinking again, like what would the ideal future look like? Mm-hmm. And I think in situations like this, I really want to push against that just because that's working with the same framework we always have, which has clearly proven itself not to work. Right. And I don't, I don't know what yeah. that looks like to say, well, let's have an not industrial revolution, a different kind that but provides I think that's wealth what, and that's power. That's what Bjorn Lundberg is proposing. Is that what you're proposing? He's saying something let's, different, not let's the same y- level of development, right? But in instead, a different way. instead of thinking about you know, solving problems in the ways that, and, and I think that's where he, like they have done, he's a part of an organization that has done studies where they're actually trying to work with economists and, you know, so work with a broad team of people, kind of like what you were describing earlier and analyze, you know, what are the way, you know, if we're going to spend a dollar, what is the way that we can spend a dollar today that will maximize the environmental impact in 20 or 50 years, right? right? Let's let's crunch some numbers. Let's do some work. And I don't remember all of them, but one of the things that they argued was one of the best ways to maximize your, your input was in early childhood education. 
around literacy, which is like, you wouldn't even think that that would have any connection to global warming, but they actually are arguing it's one of the best ways we could actually mitigate global warming is like a a program like that, right? which totally doesn't, you know, no, no politician is ever going to stand up and say, we're going to fight global warming by teaching kids how to read. You know what I mean? The complexity of it. (laughs) Right. You remember me mentioning that the, the donut economics concept. Yes. And then the, the concept of like the social foundations as well. We, we did a study where we kind of like took a bunch of data from around the globe and threw it together. We didn't throw it together. It was a very complicated process, but looking at how those different aspects interacted and whether there was positive or negative feedback. And it's crazy to look at. And I, couldn't tell you whether there was like a direct causal link or whether it was indirect, but it's mm. wonderful to see those kind of things. Right. And it's such a great example of how we can have two values at once. Right. It's not necessarily right. conflicting and it's frustrating when you have narratives and you have people who right. are, are, are touting it that way. <laughs> yes. And I, I really think whenever anyone's like, these two things can't work together, my instant response to that, at least mentally, is, but how could they? Yeah. There's like there's maybe there isn't always, but I think often there is a way where they're not necessarily in conflict. Right. But I think so this is where I think we're to me, this is this is like science clearly has so much to say about the the last five minutes that we've been just been talking about, like the intersection of yeah. you know, pe- people's um economic flourishing and you know, how that intersects with the, the natural world and, and, the, and the health of our environment. But there's more going on than just scientific questions there. There's also ethical or moral or even spiritual questions that are yeah. a part of the mix that the scientific method doesn't actually speak to. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a ton to say to help inform that conversation, but right. it's not actually the tool, the best tool to use to have that actual conversation, right? Right. And so, so they're clearly in the way that we are framing the conversation now there is this tension between people's economic well-being and the well-being of the natural world right like that's there's there, those are clearly at odds at least in terms of the way we're talking about it now yeah. such that you have to actually answer the question is it better that we keep the climate from going up 2 degrees celsius over the next 100 years or is it better that you know another billion people starve to death you pick right and it's like well i don't want to pick between those but that's the way we're framing the conversation now, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, we're not even really having that conversation. We're just assuming we need to make sure that the climate doesn't go up two degrees and we're not even aware of the fact that our current policy proposals might actually cause people to starve to death. Well, that's that's not what we talked about in the news. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. You're right. But, but to your point, if we were actually willing to have more honest, nuanced conversations. And I would say actually just more scientific conversations without some of the, like the unhealthy and dishonest ways that people are attempting to use science. Mm -hmm. Then I think we could actually get at. Start to figure that out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I like, this is tangentially related, but when I hear people speaking with, as much fear as I often hear, like, mm-hmm. where will it end? What, like, what, what will this lead to? I've, at first I was quite frustrated and now I've kind of come to realize like my, my biggest question is well, where are you afraid of this ending? Like, what is your biggest fear and why are you resisting this? Mm-hmm. Because there's probably a good question there. Mm-hmm. And by just resisting, you're not allowing that question to come into the conversation. 
and be included as a good point. Yep. And I, I don't know. That's just a really hard thing to do, especially when that when doesn't seem like a scientific insight. That seems like, <laughs> a, but I, I don't mean that. It, like, no. I guess I don't mean that as a compliment. I, I kind of mean it as a compliment, but not that you're unscientific and that's a compliment. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But where, like, where does that come from in you? Like that, that curiosity or that, that awareness? Well, I do think it's mixed up in, in the scientific more mm-hmm. so in what I was starting the conversation with talking about truth and why it matters. Yeah. I think that there's a kernel of truth in most things. And so I'm always kind of itching to find it. And (laughs) which makes you a good scientist. I I think so. And a good Christian. I hope so. And a good person. (laughs) That's the goal. Probably a good wife and a good daughter and a good neighbor and all those things. I'm trying. I'm trying. And I I think it's really hard Mm. because sometimes there is an incredible amount of frustration and I don't know where to put it. Um, but I think that that question has really helped me at least. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was fun. It was. It yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that one thing I hope comes out of this conversation is, yes, people talking about climate change and is people figuring out their like values, but also realizing both that science is an incredibly important and valuable and, and powerful methodology that can give us like real insights into the world and that science is limited and we are not objective as close as objectivity as we can get through certain methodologies. There's not pure objectivity. There's not absolute certainty and that there's an incredible amount of nuance that goes into scientific evaluations. And to hold both of those in tension feels a bit like a paradox at times. Mm. But I think that that's where like really helpful conversations and really helpful understandings and actions come out of. Yeah. So can, can we go in a direction I didn't put down on in any of our questions here? So the whole kind of like science and faith thing, right. And, yeah, I'll just ask the question and then sure. then we can talk more about it. But what for you, how does, so science is, a, a, the scientific method is a tool for pursuing truth, but I think so is faith, right? Mm-hmm. Or ho- however you want to, you know, more broadly like Christianity or how do those relate to you? So in some way, shape or form, they're both engaged in that same primary task of, mm-hmm. you know, communicate, like discerning and communicating truth. How do those two things fit together for you? I think, at least in my mind, uh, the scientific process looks at the physical realm Mm. and it looks at like patterns in the physical world and what we can know about it. And I think that religion and faith is looking at the value system with which to act or use that knowledge. And so I think... They are definitely not mutually exclusive. They're complementary. Right. (laughs) Using them together makes the world bigger and more vibrant and have so much more value because of the truth and understanding you gain through science and also through the uh, knowledge in another sense and truth that you gain through understanding creation and God's word in the Bible together. Mm -hmm. And um, 
yeah. So I, I really think that they work together to make yeah. the world better and more interesting to me. Yeah. No, I, I think you and I see that almost identically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What ha, Are there places where you have found, so I, I also would agree that they are entirely complementary. Yeah. That doesn't mean though that there aren't places where there are tensions in, but so, you know, I'm not a trained scientist. I do actually care quite a lot, a bit, a quite a bit, a lot of, um, that, that the, neither sentence came out right. Quite a bit about. Quite a bit about. There you go. I do care quite a bit about um, science as a methodology for truth. And it's mm-hmm. something that I that I have, like I've integrated that into the way that I see the world and the way that I interact with the world, even though I'm not going about doing lots of science. <laughs> um, <laughs> doing the science. Yeah. Uh, My brother and I have this ongoing both brothers actually have an ongoing joke about like, if you write it down, it's science. Okay. <laughs> so you right. just write something down. I'm doing it science. for the science. I, yeah. My grandpa was like that. If, <laughs> if you told it to him, he didn't believe it. If you saw it on TV, he probably didn't believe oh, it. No. But if you read it in a book, it was true. Yeah. That's yeah. how it he works. He had a bunch of books on UFOs. It's typed. It was really funny. hundred percent true. Yeah. So, um, right. But th- so I do think that those are largely complementary. but there are places where there is tension. And I think, more often that is rooted in the scientific community and the faith community, not so much science and Christianity. The cultures that right. they exist in, yeah. But there still are tensions that I've had to navigate. I would imagine there are some for you, yeah? I think You're perfectly maybe. integrated? Yes. Like, no, I have I'm no actually tension. awesome. No. <laughs> I think that the tension comes from constant questions and I'm okay. kind of working through them all the time and questions you're asking or other people are asking both Pe- questions people are asking you or just questions in the culture both okay. I think yeah I actually let's see if I can find it or I'll just try and remember but I wrote a while ago just I need to allow myself to fully ask questions mm. of both my faith and through the scientific process mm. and in doing that it hasn't let me down yeah I think that sometimes there's this fear and I I haven't heard it specifically articulated. I I guess I haven't interpreted this, so I could be wrong, but a fear from people, especially in the church community that if they start using the scientific method or listening to a the scientific culture, that they're going to, they're going to come up against something where science and religion cannot be rectified. And I have not found that I've actually found deeper faith and more value and wonder and excitement in my scientific work because of that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's been really cool. I, I remember my advisor giving a talk and she very excitedly said that when you work at the edge of novelty, wonder is always there. And I think that's an aspect of science that because it's touted as an authority, people forget. Yeah. It's exciting. You're discovering things. You're questioning things. There's like this wonderful world and you're using creativity and improvisation to ask questions and then to reevaluate when the data is not anything like what you expected. And so there, there is almost an art to it yeah. that often is overlooked sometimes on purpose um 
But I think that's like a really wonderful aspect of the scientific method and the yeah. culture of science that I have really appreciated. And I think because of finding that, that liveliness kind of helped me realize like this isn't some sort of cold, calculated, objective way of viewing the world, um, which to me would be pretty contrasted to right. what I know about God and the spirit and Jesus working in the world, which to me is very beautiful in like every iteration of that word. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it is. It is. I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, we have, we, yeah, our... Let me look at these questions. Yeah. There, there's there's a, a direction we could go. I don't know, unless there's a direction you want to go. Um, I think there's just one thing I wrote down that I can just say. And <laughs> cool. <laughs> but uh, I do think there's uh, the false idea that making moral judgments only happens when people are involved. But I think I, okay. I touched on that before with talking we'll talk about more like about that ecosystem restoration specifically when oh, i was talking about that like gotcha. you're taking yeah, you're yeah, making yeah. A, a value judgment i there. totally misheard what you said <laughs> i thought what you were saying is that like non-human creatures are making value judgments i was like oh <laughs> that's interesting be. i don't know tell me more about that that's fascinating that's not what you meant <laughs> no at all. no you, that yeah, we're, we're tra making, totally tracking. yeah so yes, that's, okay. that's something that i i kind of pointed out before but yeah i i like to remind people of that too especially like this is not Values don't exist just when science bumps up against social science. Right. It, it happens all the time. Right. No, so, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, so what I was thinking about is we, we haven't really talked at all about any of the science communication stuff. Yeah. We've mostly just been talking about science, science and faith. And a little um, bit about how it's used in communication. That's true. We have. Yeah. yeah. But I think, so you have some formal training as a science communicator, correct? Um, I have you, stumbled into the realm okay. of science communication and I have a little bit of training. But yes. you've actually been doing it. Yes. Right. Yes. So, to some extent I have. Yeah. <laughs> I think doing something counts as training in my opinion. Even <laughs> it if is one form of training right. for sure. For That's sure. usually the only kind of training I ever get is I right. just go do something. You go do it. Yeah. yeah. How and did you learn to do this? Well, well I just did it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And as a side thought, I think that's a really interesting aspect of knowledge that we don't right. talk about this idea that if you are trained in the ways of science, the knowledge that you have about something is we make a value judgment. Right. It's worth more than the knowledge that you gain through experience or cultural knowledge right. that, that different traditions have. Right. And it's been really wonderful to see at least recently in like the scientific community I'm a part of a lot of the language around that is shifting and people are trying mm. to call attention to the fact that when we talk about science, we're talking about like, Western scientific methodology. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah which just as I thought. No, I think it's because w my understanding of the scientific method is while there is a quote unquote method that individuals are to follow while doing science, that actually uh, perhaps an even more important part of the scientific method is the creation of a community of people that are constantly critiquing each other's body of work. And that that itself is really like where the real meat of the scientific method produces fruit. Or it, I just mix some serious metaphors, but meat and fruit yeah, together. Where the it's meat a delicious meal fruit. of science. It is somehow meat produces fruit. But <laughs> but that's like that's yeah. 
and and so holding it's each in, other accountable in that methodology exactly. and also giving each other perspective in that when I submit a paper for publication and I get five pages of comments back and I have to deal with that. Right. It's painful in the moment, but it's also exciting because I now have insight from three or four other people, their perspective, their training, their recommended changes to my method, their recommended readings. Yeah. And in that I have now extended my, my slice of the knowledge pie in this particular situation. Yep. And that is really cool. Yep. And that's where I think, so it doesn't necessarily have to extend beyond the scientific community, but I think it naturally does like that, that discourse around what is true. And obviously when you're, when you have trained scientists engaged in that discourse with each other, there's a lot more like you can move faster, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think, um, you know, even when you have like when, when that discourse is opened up to the community as a whole, obviously there are going to be people who ask dumb questions or, you know, maybe they have knowledge that they've gained in ways that, you know, isn't, it's not, it's, it's not, it didn't, it didn't come through scientific channels, but it's still something that can kind of be put on the table as a check for like the scientific conversation. And then scientists can engage with that. And you know what I mean? So, so to me that, that is something that I think does arise naturally from the scientific process that you're going to have non-science, like we're going to have a conversation about what's true. And that is a part of the way that we're going to discover what is true is we're going to argue with each other about it. And that Mm -hmm. argument is actually going to help shape our understanding of truth in such a way that it will correspond more and more to reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so how that connects to communication about science, it, it seems like the, you know, I'm a step back. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit from your perspective on the, you know, kind of like the discipline of science communication. What is it? What are, what are you trying to accomplish? What are the best practices? What are some of the problems? Start there. Right. Okay. Um, so scientific communication, it's communicating science. And, um, so actually the term I tend to work with and like the field that I, I do more work in is, uh, we, we call it knowledge mobilization. <laughs> uh-huh. I, just, I don't even, that makes me right. laugh. But uh, I knowledge like that mobilization. because you're taking knowledge and you're mobilizing it. You're putting uh-huh. it in a form that can move from the discipline of science into perhaps like an action-based situation. Perhaps it means translating it into something that policymakers are better to un- better able to understand. Maybe it means turning it into educational material for right. a classroom. Maybe it's just creating it. Maybe it's a diagram, just translating it into a way that the public can understand because nobody really wants to read like a 10 page journal article about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's useful information. So it's, it's kind of in a way growing knowledge. It's, it's creating action out of knowledge. Mm. Um, and it's promoting and facilitating the use of knowledge, mm. which is that's not necessarily science communication because science communication is, I think, just limited to communication. But through communication, you kind of hope that a little bit of action yeah. from your knowledge happens. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's that's some of what I work with. What are some of the common problems that you run up against? I think just figuring out the translation aspect. If you're talk, a scientist. Talk about that. What do you mean by right. that? Right. So as a scientist, 
I am most comfortable communicating according to like my training in this, the culture of science, right? I want to be incredibly specific. I want to tell you all of the nuances of the situation that's going to result in a 10-page journal article. And so if you're trying to take that information and you're, you're trying to put it in a format that is accessible and interesting to, let's say, like children in elementary school. I was just thinking an eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> going to be different. And so I think one thing that is been really exciting to me is just realizing how important narrative is, mm-hmm. how like human brains are kind of, we're oriented towards stories. And scientists are good at telling stories in a very scientific way. Like you kind of have your story in terms of a paper. You have your introduction giving the background of the entire situation. You have your methodology, like what are the actions you took and like where is the knowledge that you gained in the context of the wider literature. But that's not really what we like want to hear. That's not interesting to us. So finding ways to use metaphors to tell stories about something, to give a small example to illustrate the larger aspect of it. As a scientist, that feels a little bit uncomfortable because I don't feel like I'm being fully accurate. Right. But it's it's telling the story of this knowledge and how it can be used in a much more accessible way. So yeah, that's that's been a cool realization. I think um as somebody who has some training in the arts, that Mm. has made it a lot easier for me and has actually put me in a really unique situation where I can like almost speak two languages, one of the arts and one of the sciences. And so moving from one to the other has been easier, which is why I've been able to kind of jump into that field of of science communication in in more ways. No, that's cool. I mean, yeah. So it seems like that. So what's compelling for people is, you know, you said people are wired for stories yeah. and it's, it's because stories communicate um, like they give us a sense of like meaning and, and you know what I mean? Like that, that's what they're communicating. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, facts about the natural world don't always necessarily convey a sense of meaning. Sometimes they can, you know what I mean? Right. Particularly when you have an experience of them but they don't necessarily inherently do that, at least not for everybody all the time. Right. Unless you're like you wanna... one of those rare breed of people called scientists, <laughs> then, then they do. But Well, yeah. actually, so I was recently reading a paper and I cannot remember the title of it now, but um, they were, it was a, a meta data study. So you okay. were looking at yep. data that other people have found. So you're kind of collecting a bunch of papers and looking at what are the patterns in this field of research. Yes. And they were looking at, human nature relationships. Okay. So your, your concept of your relationship to your environment kind of, mm-hmm. um, which what I was talking about earlier. And there was kind of three ways that they had, that had been measured. Um, one was through education. So if we're educating people about the environment, do they feel more of that connection? One was through experience like meditation and, and kind of mindfulness so it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't experience, it was mindfulness. So whether okay. you're like having someone meditate on it, having someone think about it, having somebody like walking through, like imagine yourself in a forest. <laughs> and then there was um, actual experience. So going out and being in a natural area and having somebody maybe tell you about it, maybe just being in a natural area. And they found that the least effective method for for really facilitating people's understanding of their relationship to the environment was education. 
that it was the experience and it was the mindfulness that really changed people's understanding of that. Yeah. Which kind of goes against a lot of what you assume because you think education is important and we tell education as being incredibly important. But if it's just education of facts and not experiential. Yeah. Or has that meaning that like mindfulness brings to something. And I think a lot of mindfulness happens through telling stories. Yeah. It just doesn't have the impact. No. And that was, that was kind of, it wasn't surprising, but it was at the same time. It made so much sense, but I was still kind of shocked. I think that that has a lot more to do with what we mean by the word education. I think. Right. Because I think what we mean by education most of the time is, you know, getting facts out of my head into your head. Reading a book about it. Yeah. And, and, and even if, if, if it's going to be a book, it's going to be a book with a lot of like tables in it. Right. Like you a know. chemistry textbook or something. <laughs> You're like, what is the, what is the most boring book I could find? That's oh, what I mean by education. I'm just picturing, I have this massive chemistry textbook and I don't know what to do with it because mm-hmm. it's out of date now. So I can't sell it to people, but I also don't want it anymore. Yep. It's huge. <laughs> if somebody breaks into your house, you could hit them with it. Kinda. I'd go. be afraid of the damage it would do. It's massive. But what, are, what are you doing here in jail? Well, I hit somebody with my chemistry book. Right. Yeah. But, but I would I would agree. I think yeah. that the, the experiences make a lot more difference and they're not really considered education. No. Actually, so um, I don't know if I told you this, but I was homeschooled mm-hmm. up until high school. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely, we did like book research and book education but there was also lots of let's go out to the woods right. and like let's learn the names of the th- plants that were growing in the garden and let's learn how to can this thing and i think that combination was actually really oh, good right. because i i really gained a thirst for learning right from that and i think it was having both of them no i think so the the um there's a, a saying, this is not necessarily an educational saying, but it's um, more like a leadership or development kind of a, a saying, but that you remember 100% of the information that you receive after you need it, hmm. right? Yeah. And and when wow. you think about yep. that, you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. right? And so that's where that whole kind of like action reflection cycle is really helpful when you're like, hey, let's go wander through the woods. And oh, now that you touch that plant and you have like blisters. You know what it is and you're (laughs) not going to touch it again. (laughs) Now when I give you the information, like you've learned that or, you know, even if it's something less, you know, painful, but still it's like, I want to know what that is or I want to understand this and I can't. Okay, well now let's go back and engage with a textbook about that. And then you're going to, you will remember all of that. Yeah. And so to go back to what we were talking about earlier with, climate change. Mm. I think that's another aspect of it that makes talking about it and making decisions and having people actually follow through with them so much more difficult because it's not something that people think they've experienced. Right. I think it, so it's something that's happening already, but you don't necessarily put it together. You think it's something that's happening in the future. And here we're not experiencing floods. We're not experiencing forest fires. We're not experiencing famine. So it's hard to, have that kind of motivation and have the knowledge stick right? because it's something more theoretical for yeah. us. Yeah, for sure. Just, yeah. So I feel like on the science communication stuff, this oh, yeah. is where like the, so, well, no, that's, that's actually, that's, that's a different conversation. Hmm. 
We can have that later. I know we could probably totally. not at the end of this no, conversation, I know, but like, I gotta go home. I love talking about science. So really yeah. anytime. Yeah. Well, so let me look at these questions and see if there's anything else we want to talk about. Right. Mm. Oh yeah. That would be fun. That'd be a good way to end. Let's see what mm. else is on here. Mm. All right. Let me ask, is there anything you want to talk about? I not off the top of my head. Right. There's lots of that I want to talk about, but they're all like starting new conversations. Right. So this is, I mean, this is, this could be a, you know, we're, we're at 120. So I think we could do this in like five, 10 minutes if sure. that works for you. All yeah. right. So the last question I asked on this list was about um, like big tech censoring misinformation. Right. Right. Which again, I don't know if that's happened around, like I know it's happened a ton around COVID stuff. Right. I don't know if it's happened around other stuff. That's interesting. I'd have it to. It might have, but yeah. it's not something that I'm aware of, which is actually, so this is interesting because I I do work with science communication, but I'm mm. not very aware of media. Okay. <laughs> I like, I spend a lot of time reading papers and like listening to interviews gotcha. with experts and not necessarily the entire realm of science communication because it mm. is kind of a field in and of itself. Yep. It's like almost it well it is communication more so than science. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask about best practices like they're the same ones as communication. Yeah. And this is it gets confusing and the lines kind of blur because science as a culture and as a practice have has kind of grown so much that it it rubs up against like kind of every aspect, every other aspect of our life, whether it's like science and religion, how do you rectify those? How are they in conflict? Whether it's science communication, how are you communicating science? There's a realm of communication and now there's a scientific aspect of it. Yeah. So in that sense, science is kind of everywhere. Right. Yeah. 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 So sorry, that was just the context of you right. can ask me a question. I might not yeah. have an example of it, and I'm happy to give my opinion. Well, so but I might what, not have background. I know for what it. has happened over the last, and you know, like whenever you have a, a platform for disseminating information, people are always trying to control it. So that's mm -hmm. not necessarily new. But over the last, like since COVID, there have been some really interesting ways that both um, private tech companies, I mean, these are large though, obviously we're talking about things like YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, um, will attempt to control certain kinds of information being disseminated. Um, and then also like the, like our, the state has actually looked into not, not obviously hasn't necessarily made any specific decisions around that, but there have like been certain politicians who have advocated for or advocated against these tech companies doing that. And so for example, the, at the very beginning of the, the COVID shutdown, so this is like, I don't know, month one or something like that, there were a couple of doctors who were advocating for some different policies and they had, you know, again, they, I mean, these are medical doctors, so mm -hmm. um, they, they had some rationale and their uh, interview got pulled off of YouTube. And these were definitely guys who were saying things that were contrary to some of the decisions that were being made by um, by our, our federal and, and state governments at the time. But they weren't, you know, they weren't like, they weren't tinfoil hat guys. These were, these yeah. were like medical professionals arguing on the merits of the science. But because what they were saying ran counter to some of the kind of like established narratives, they got yanked. Um, so that's the, that, the, that was the first, and I actually, I was kind of like, a little freaked out and bothered by it. I'm like, wait, what the heck? What we're gonna? But mm. then it ended up basically <laughs> like something like a hundred thousand people had like 
copied it on their phones and uploaded it to their own YouTube account. So it ended up going viral anyway. So they didn't right. like YouTube could, didn't have the power to pull it off of its own platform, right. which was kind of funny, but there have been lots of attempts like that. And, and there are some clear, um, you know, when people are like, Hey, drink bleach and it'll cure you, cure you of COVID. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like there's plenty of that out there too, where you're like, okay, that's just not right. Well, like, when, so we, sorry. All, all I was going to say is like, it does run the spectrum, right? So yeah. you've got people who are, and, and like the scientific community, as we have already discussed, thrives on um, like disagreement about what is true. Like that's what the scientific method is. And so to have, you know, basically like computer, <laughs> computer programmers and uh, CEOs of businesses determining what does and doesn't count as what's in the public discourse around science and medicine that's an interesting place to be right i i think that in some well i I don't know actually if i would agree with your statement that the scientific community thrives off of disagreement okay i think it it can create disagreement sometimes but i think what 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 we thrive off of is people adding another perspective Okay. Or a different facet of something. So it's not necessarily, I think this, no, you're wrong, I think this. It's, I think this, but have you considered this aspect of it? Okay. And I think that is what happened in the situation you just talked about. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily that these scientists came on and said, absolutely everything about this is completely wrong and we're going to give this absolutely contrary concept, mm-hmm. but instead is adding a facet to it and saying, this policy covers X, Y, Z, right? but they haven't considered ABC aspect of it. Right. And we're trying to bring that forward and we hope that it would be integrated into policy and action. I don't but know if that's actually what happened, but my guess I think would that be that's though what, that if you were a scientist, you are, and you <laughs> wrote a paper, which you've mm-hmm. done, and another scientist came along and said, you're wrong and here's why, your response to them wouldn't be to get them banned from talking to you. Your response would be to engage in a conversation about the merits of your argument versus theirs. I right. would assume. Right. Yes. Yes. So that's and, where it's like, context oh, that's of interesting. Where my research happened compared to where their research happened. Right. Cause that happens all the time. It actually happened in the most recent paper that I'm working on getting published is somebody said, well, what about this other paper that actually found the contrary thing that you did? Exactly. And you have to look at that and take it seriously exactly. and think about how they can be rectified as both being true. Because Instead if of getting they're not blacklisted. Both true, yeah. But sometimes blacklisting does happen in scientific <laughs> communities. Like it does. If, if you falsify data, they're going to pull your right. credentials. That's different than what you're talking well, about Well, right. Here. Exactly. You're, you're not blacklisted because of the findings of the scientific process. You're being blacklisted because you're not engaging in the scientific process and pretending to do so. Right. The complication is that the general public is not the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And I think that ideally I would hope and I would wish that they would be responsible mm-hmm. like the scientific community hopefully will be with information and with adding different context, nuance, another perspective, another aspect of a situation that you need to consider. Right. However, I think in really complicated, dangerous situations like a global pandemic, Mm. they have not necessarily shown themselves to be they, the general public, this, they. Um, And so 
the question of whether to pull that or not is a question of policy. Mm-hmm. It's a question of communication. Mm-hmm. It's a question of how people are right. going to respond to something. Yes. As a scientist, I want to hear that other perspective. It's kind of like that that kernel of truth, that mm-hmm. that niggling feeling of like, but what are they pointing out that we need to also consider? Because there's probably something valuable there. But if including that in our conversation means that no action happens, that's a value judgment. That's saying we want action to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think the the result is sometimes you do have to put like... I really like it when they have a little tag that says this hasn't been proven or there are lots of other studies that say something contrary. Mm. I wish that that happened more and I wish that I trusted people to take that seriously. Mm. Um, But I I think... Shouldn't everything come with that tag though? (laughs) Every single thing. I mean, that's how I engage with everything. There's something different. No, I just... I, I would say I don't believe anything ever unless like within the realm of, you know, if it's like information that I just don't like, I'm, I'm not somebody who like, I don't have the expertise to really judge this. Mm. You know, like if you tell me how to wire a, a, an electrical outlet, I can tell if you know what you're talking about. Cause I know how to do that. Right. right. But when it's like, you know, we're, I don't know, we're talking about COVID policy or something like, I don't I, who am I? You know what I mean? Right. It's ridiculous that I'm even engaging in trying to understand this stuff in the first place. Right. It's a sign of all that is wrong with our world that I have to try and figure out COVID stuff. It's you know? hard. The, right. the number of decisions you have to make yeah, is really silly. hard. I think that what I would push back against this for you is when you don't know something, mm-hmm. You don't know an aspect of it. So if somebody tells you something and they have perhaps scientific credentials behind them, right? you can know that. right? And then somebody can come along and tell you something different mm-hmm. that probably isn't actually contradictory. It might right. just be adding more perspective. It might be broadening your picture of a situation. Right. And it, I understand your reluctance to say that you know something. Right. Because I have that too. Again, right. as a scientist, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I don't want people to say, well, you said this for sure. And you said that you knew it. But I really think that we need to not be, I don't know if you're being cynical in that, but like have not have so much fear in accepting knowledge and accepting the responsibility of having it. So this is, so here's, here's a super practical example. Okay. Uh, we have to decide whether or not we want to encourage or discourage our, we wouldn't make the decision for them, but whether or not we want to encourage or discourage our teenagers from getting the COVID vaccine. Right. And we've kind of reached the point where we really like they're without getting into the details, like we have to make this decision now. Um, and, uh, I don't really know where to turn for like, that's part of the reason why the decision hasn't been made yet is, there's so many different voices, so many of the people with the who who ought to be helping me understand what is true are so clearly not doing their job, right? So you have people, you know, I mean, a lot of the the kind of like government, um, uh, like scientifically esta- the established the sci- the government established scientific. Um, um, uh, institutes. Yeah. So like CDC or whatever, like they've just engaged in politics so much. So to the point where it's like, well, I don't really trust you as a scientific institution. Like you're not trying to tell me the truth. You're trying to manipulate my behavior. And so 
I'm not even necessarily saying that as a criticism. Like that's just kind of what that's what politics. That's does. what Paul. That's what politicians do is they try and manipulate our behavior. So I don't, you know, like I don't actually criticize somebody like Anthony Fauci for not communicating science, but rather trying to tell me what he wants me to hear. So I'll do what he wants me to do. Like, I'm not really mad at him for that. That's his job. Right. But you don't think that he's taking his job as a scientist. No. As no, no, his no, no. first no, no, responsibility. No, no. Not even close. Yeah. He's, 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 he's been a politician for the last year and a half for yeah. sure. And so, and as a politician, he's mm-hmm. not, he's not concerned with communicating the truth to me. He's concerned with controlling my behavior. But and, do they have to be mutually exclusive? No, but when they are, I know which one he's choosing. <laughs> so your assumption here is that they are mutually exclusive in the in, situation. In some situations, they are. So right? your your fear in this situation then is that they could be, and you well, wouldn't know. When right, and when somebody like an Anthony Fauci or an organization like the CDC contradicts themselves all over the place in ways that make it clear that they're not really interested in telling me the truth, but rather they're interested. And again, I don't, I don't dispute, or I don't. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't impute bad motives. Like, I don't think that, again, I, I guys. You don't in, think they're microchipping you? No, Sorry. No, yeah, maybe a little bit. I do kind uh, of. So I, I don't think that Anthony Fauci is trying to hurt people or like, I think he's doing the best that he knows how to do. But I also don't think that it would, like, I don't see him as like my ninth grade biology teacher who's trying to help me understand the truth about science. I see him as a politician who's trying to get me to like follow certain courses of action. Right. So, so in that what I'm hearing you say is that kind of as I threw back at you before, you think that in a case where both the truth and what someone like Anthony Fauci wants you to do, there could be a case in which those two things aren't the same. Right. And in that circumstance, you are afraid that one being what your behavior is would win out and you wouldn't know. Right. Because the knowledge isn't being communicated to you. Right. And so when it comes to the question of whether or not a 15-year-old boy should get a vaccine, right? So so just going back to what you said, I think one complication of scientific communication, and I don't know all of the things being communicated about COVID. I, I'm not, I don't have a medical background. Yeah. But one thing I've noticed is people calling out contradictions. And I think that sometimes, depending on the timing of that, that's just science communication. Right. Like we think this, now and we now anymore. we have more information. Totally we have fair. more numbers in there. Right. We're changing our mind. Right. But people are afraid of that because now it looks like you are changing your mind when really what you're doing right. is updating the information that you have. That I can accept. And I wish, like, I wish what I, so again, Fauci is a bad example because he really does have to act as a politician. And that really is a hard place to be. Um, but, you know, so early on in the pandemic, he clearly communicated to people, you don't need masks. <laughs> when he knew for a fact that actually the mask would be really helpful per, for people, he just didn't want people to go out and get masks because the medical professionals needed them, right? And he's, he, he came out and said all of this, right? So this isn't, this isn't like reading between the lines. This is him coming out and saying, So, so yeah. his, his aspect, like his picture, the scale at which he was working right. was larger than the individual. And <laughs> right. as an individual... Right. We don't like that. No, right. Exactly. Even if it makes sense and he's fulfilling right. his job to a really good exactly. degree. Right. Yeah. So again, like and that's where like I understand that he's not, you know, he wasn't acting as a science educator, but that but then that that puts me in a position as somebody who needs a science educator in a rough spot because I don't know where to find him. Right. So who's gonna who's gonna help me understand whether or not my fifteen year old son 
is more at risk for myocarditis than for uh, COVID. Right. Well, I, I don't know. And so now I'm stuck in this place where I have to go, like if I, this is what I wish I could find is I wish I could find two people of equal um, kind of like authority of legitimate authority who would then, who, who are on opposite sides of, of the spectrum who would then argue with each other. And I'm pretty sure usually when I can find that conversation, I can find the truth. If I can find that conversation, it's right. hard to find that conversation though. So the, the argument again, not being necessarily contradiction of each other, but bringing everything that they know mm -hmm. to provide every possible context to yeah. give you 100% confidence. Yeah. Yes. Well, Everybody wants that. I don't right? need you 100% want, confidence. I just need something. I, I need more than zero. You have zero. On that, so I mean, so on that one, I, I found studies that suggest that a 15-year-old boy is three times more likely to be hospitalized for myocarditis than for COVID. Well, that's kind of a crummy stat to find. And this is this is from like reputable sources, right? right? Yeah. And so then it's like, well, and then and then when you go to like a place like the CDC website, they don't really get into it. Like they just say, basically they say, trust us and get the vaccine. That's kind of what they say. They're right. like, and yeah, again, myocarditis this is, is a thing, but it's just a small risk. This isn't a thing, an aspect of science that we haven't touched on yet, but it's scale. Right. So what is the scale that you're operating at? Well, Are it's you very small. Yeah, it's, it's, I think. Um, well, so actually I think like in this case, the scale is very large, but what you want oh, is yeah, a yeah. very the small. The risk is small. The, right. Well, the risk is not, but, but like. The scale at which you're making the judgments and what you're where you're you're looking at the science, the, using the scientific method to look at probabilities mm -hmm. is perhaps the entirety of North America or the world. Like everybody who has gotten right. the vaccine, this is the scale at which we're looking at. This we're study you was the an American study. Okay, so you're looking at the United States, and what you want instead is for somebody to look at your specific situation and tell you what to do right. based on those those right facts based on the knowledge that you have. Right. And that's like something that we don't have yet. I actually think we do. Yeah. I think the people who are in a position to know won't say. Hmm. That's what I think is going on. Because it would compromise the larger picture. Mm -hmm. hmm. Right. Right. And that's a moral judgment, <laughs> yeah. which scientists can make yeah. and have. Yeah. But it's not necessarily based on the scientific method. Not at what all. What you're doing is you're using, again... You're using science to say, based on the data that we have, this action will probably cause this outcome. Right. Right. And and then you're making the judgment call that that's the outcome that we want. Right. Right. And so then we'll just tell people what they need to hear to do what we want them to so do. So what I think we're getting into is we need to bring a philosopher into here and say what to do next. Because as a scientist, like, I can't tell you what a scientist should do. I yeah. can just tell you as a person what I think. Right. And I mean, that's still valid, but it's not mm -hmm. really my authority as a scientist. Right. Which, yeah. No, right. I think, and I think that is where you're, you're looking at the clock there. You <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah. We're talking for, we, we I, went way over. I just love talking. And then I realized like, wow, we've been talking for a really long time. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I don't know where, how, how should we end this then? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what a good wrap up to that is, except for that, <laughs> like context is incredibly important that scientists always want to give nuance because we find that to be the best way of getting closer to the truth. Yeah. And that I think good science should always bring you some aspect of truth. Mm. And then 
it's it's philosophy it's our own morality it's individuals and larger organizations that are making those judgments of what to do with it yeah and that doesn't mean it's not science it just means and it doesn't mean that scientists shouldn't be involved right it's just different than saying this yes. is 100 percent science yep no yeah. i i, I so, really like that yeah so uh, like sorry i'm just gonna keep talking but I, I think a good example of this is i was actually i was talking with a researcher this morning and she was talking about hydroelectric energy, okay, which is considered to be more a green form of energy. So we would say we want that. Like it doesn't put coal or it's not coal. It's not nuclear. It's not putting carbon into the atmosphere. It's not creating radioactive waste. It's probably a good thing. But mm. when you have hydroelectric like you do in so Manitoba is where she was working, they have created these dams on Anishinaabe land. And now you've created a situation where like right. the entirety of these indigenous communities have been either flooded and these people had to move or they're living on man-made islands and they're not well, they're not taken care of. This is right. like a travesty. So the scientific facts do say that hydroelectric energy is better, but in this context, it wasn't because of the whole picture that you're looking at. So you can take one sliver and have a lot of confidence, but you do need to take like the entire picture into consideration. And I just found that really impactful because like I have said that like, yes, we should promote green energy, but not like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about something, maybe it's climate change, maybe it's looking at this global pandemic we're living in, you kind of have to balance both those small scale factors whether it's a small scale of like we're looking just at hydroelectric energy and how it's right. generated and what what kind of outputs there are. But you also have to look at the the larger picture. And I think, again, like the way I like to see it is who has the biggest picture in this situation? They should probably be the one making the decisions. Mm. Mm. That's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but it's not necessarily the person who's looking at the biggest scale. And it's okay. not necessarily the... Sorry. Yes, I misheard you. Right. It's not right. necessarily the this biggest... It's still a conversation for another day. Okay. I think so. But it's... It, and, it, and it's not necessarily the person who has the deepest understanding. It's looking at the entirety. And, and if you have the biggest yeah. slice of this knowledge pie of the of the situation... I totally agree with you. I misheard right. you the first time. Okay. I, I think... Yeah. Well, I, I heard you say the person with the biggest scale should should answer the question. Right. I, I don't... Don't like that. I think so, the person with the bigger picture. Yeah. Absolutely. And that that's is. looking at if you have more facets yes. of a situation, if you have 100%. the larger picture, more mm-hmm. context, then you are better able to make that value judgment. Right. If you have more of the truth, mm-hmm. you can act, I think, with more truth to bring yeah. justice and mercy and peace into the world, which is kind of where it comes back to with like what I would is important that sounds like a great place to land (laughs) the plane you nailed it crushed it sweet thank you this was fun (laughs) it was this This is really good on record is the longest podcast episode yet so that's either good or bad (laughs) i think it's probably a bad thing no one's gonna want to you were gunning for three hours weren't you no you were like i can do this too no not three i was i was thinking uh when when we started uh in a different direction at 118 i thought we'd do like an hour and a half right right no this was fun thank you for thank you for having me cool thanks leanne great Two Forty Two is a podcast of Buffalo Vineyard Church, in Buffalo, New York. Learn more about who we are and get in touch with us at buffalovineyard.org. 
We'd love it if you'd subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating. Thank you for listening.